So this morning we're going to be continuing our series on the gospel according to Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 44. We're going to finish up chapter 44 and go all the way through chapter 45. So this next, this next section is a kind of a lengthy one, um, but um, I, I pray it's going to be helpful for us to go through that entire section this morning. So we're going to be in, again, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 45, uh, verse 25. Last week, just to give you an, a, a, a recap, um, Pastor Ricky preached through the the first part of chapter 43 highlighted the absurdity of worshiping idols. Is really a sense of what that passage was about. That Isaiah illustrated this with a, the, a blacksmith and, and with a carpenter and, and the, the lengths they will go to produce all with their hard work. These products that they use for everyday life, for warming ourselves, for, for heating food and, and um, providing for our material needs that, that our bodies have. And um, but after warming himself with the fire and feeding himself, he then creates this idol out of wood to worship. And he bows before it and this, again this demonstrates a link that we'll go ourselves as well to, to produce these idols of worship, these objects that we can hold with our hands, that we can understand, that we can control instead of bowing before the Almighty Sovereign God of the universe. But the good news is that redemption is available. Right? A real God lives over all these false gods. And He's jealous for our affections. He's jealous for our worship because He made us to worship Him. And He delivers us from the destructive nature of sin and our, our proclivity to bow before idols so that we can delight in Him instead. And we'll see that today. Isaiah will continue on that theme. That there's a sovereign Redeemer who created and He transcends all of the creation that He's that he's made, that he's formed with his own hands and by the word of his, of his power. And he's still very much intimately evolved in not just setting up this order, but also being a part of all that happens within his realm. And he has a plan to accomplish along with this power and authority. He has, he has the, the power to fulfill all the sovereign plans and purposes. And it's a message that Israel needed to hear as they were about to go into exile and, and as they were in exile hoping for uh, deliverance from it. And it's also a reminder that we need this morning as well, that we serve that almighty sovereign king. So um, we're going to look at our passage this morning under just uh, under um, several headings here. Um, four rather than three. It sounds like it's a lot, but um, and it is, but we're going to hopefully... Um, We'll be able to get through it ourselves. Um, and I, for some reason, I don't have this remote working. So you might have to help me with, uh, with that over there. No, okay, Pastor Rick can help me. So we'll start first in um, looking at the Lord's sovereignty. We'll look at um, also the Lord's shepherd. We're going to look then at the Lord's authority. And then lastly, we're going to look at the Lord's salvation. So let's first read from verses um, 24 through twenty. Eight of chapter 44, and look at the Lord's sovereignty. So let's, let's hear the very word of the Lord this morning. And thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the world the word of his servant, and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill 
all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And that is the word of the Lord. So this first section acts as a kind of a, a prelude for the thank you, a prelude for the rest of this this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, God begins by addressing through his prophet Isaiah. Right, the, these are the very words of God, God, even though they're coming through Isaiah, by reminding Israel who he is and reminding them of who they are. He wants them to know right up front that he is their redeemer who made them. So those are the words of familiarity, the, the words of intimacy, that he formed them from the womb, it says. That's how involved he is in the life of this nation, his nation, his people. They belong to him, and that relationship has not changed even in the midst of their exile. He has not abandoned them at the time of their greatest need. In fact, over a dozen times in this passage, he's going to address them by, by first saying, Thus says the Lord. And every time he says the word Lord here, you'll see in your, in your, uh, your Bible that it's in all capitals. That's denoting that it's the, the name of God, the unique name of God, Yahweh, the covenantal name of God that, that carries with it all this entire history of God's grace to his people. This grace that God has given to guide them and at, at times painstakingly shaping them into the people that he wants them to be, to be the ones that, that show, that reflect the glory, his glory to the world. So think of the Exodus as he takes them out of Egypt and giving them the law on Sinai and giving them into a land that he had promised Abraham that he would provide for them to live in and, and provided them judges to, to help them uh, in their times and, and giving them a, a covenantal promise with, with David, this Davidic kingdom, that, this lineage that would lead his people through their history. For centuries, God who had, had graciously, by no merit of their own, nothing they had done on their own that they deserve it, he had set his affections on Israel. And he had rescued them from these pagan kings like Assyria that we had looked at in the previous chapters. But God's activity in the world reaches much further back than, than even their inauguration as a people. All the way back to when he created the world. He's not just this territorial God like the other nations worshipped that they had manufactured, that that had uh, power over a particular area of land, but he's the God who gave birth to the entire cosmos by the word of his power. And, and although he transcends both time and space, he orchestrates all that happens throughout history, in the past, in the, in the present, in the future, in our present as well. And that's essentially what he's saying in, in these opening verses is that he's, he's built it into the grammar of his words, that, that he is the sovereign, he's the almighty power that controls the universe, that extends backwards, that's here presently, and that goes far into Israel's future and into world history's future. Look at verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you out of the womb, I'm the Lord who made all things, I alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. All past tense verbs, right? He formed, he made, he, he stretched, and he spread. Then it says in the next verse, verse 25, he switches now to the present tense. The God who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, and who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So here God displays his sovereignty by showing us that he's frustrating the plans 
of the arrogant would-be self-appointed sovereigns, right? A.K.A. sinful human beings. And there's a sense in which God probably doesn't even really need to do anything because He's limited us uh, by the fact that we're creatures, that we're fallible, that we don't have a, a true sense of, a true perception of, of reality on our own. But it says here that He actively frustrates their attempts. Their attempts to, to understand, to, to somehow... Um, make unclear, obfuscate, or even thwart his purposes and plans that, that God has for his universe. And those who attempt to, to thwart or to redefine it or to somehow exert control over God's universe are really, he's saying, are insignificant. They're impotent. They don't have any power of their own. And it kind of reminds me of this animated series from back in the 90s. I'm a 90s kid. So Animaniacs, right? So maybe some of you know that. Pinking the Brain. Remember pinking the brain with these, these, two, these, these two genetically enhanced lab ma- mice that lived in Acme Labs uh, laboratory. And uh, Pinky is the more feeble-minded of the two, right? He's not quite all there. No. Kind of stupefied, yeah. <laughs> and then you have Brain on the other hand, who as his name states, that he's got the, the more of the brain than, than Pinky does. And their whole... Their whole purpose is to try not just to get out of the lab, but, they, but Brain wants to, to conquer the world, right? He wants, to, he wants to take over the world. My plans are to take over the world, you say, from every episode. <laughs> but every time he tries, he fails, right? Because either his, the ideas that he has are impossible to implement, because after all, they're mice. They can't really do very much, right? Or his arrogance gets in the way, right? And he just he can't pull it off. And that just shows us there's a multitude of ways, right? It's just a, a funny illustration to show that, that we humans, we att- attempt in so many different ways to interpret, make sense of the past, of history, for the purpose of, of trying to change the present, to, to control it in some way, to make it better than it is, or, or to somehow predict what's coming in the future. So we build in all these kind of different ways that we forecast what we think is going to happen based on stats, what's happened before, philosophies, these, these worldview lenses that we put on that inevitably lead us in all these different directions, every direction away from God. And this is what human wisdom essentially is. It's powerless. It seeks to suppress the knowledge of God and, and that He has any kind of power or purpose over the universe that He's made and that He's the authority to carry them out. So with, with this this loud like cacophony of these phony philosophies that are all around us, how can we know what's true? How can we know what is the right way? How do we know what God's will is for the world that He created? Well, we know that because we have God's Word, right? We have Scripture. His Word was, was carried about on the lips of His prophets and, and on these messengers that He gave to Israel and to the world that we're reading from this morning, and they're, they're all collected in, in the Bible. So the question is, do we, do we, not, do we have, do we have what, what God desires and, and plans and purposes, but do we, do we trust it? Do we value it? Do we honor God's Word as, as His revelation, a, a God that, that's unknowable unless He makes Himself known to us? And He's done that. He's made Himself known to us in Scripture. He's, he's given us all that we need to know for, for faith and for life and for salvation, for godly living. And His Word is accurate. 
And all its description of reality and it's authoritative and it's also timeless. We're reading this thousands of years after it was, it was written. And God doesn't counsel, doesn't need his counsel from anybody. He said he, he chooses his own agents. He chooses those that are going to be his messengers as, as he's relaying here in this passage this morning that, that he's, they're going to herald his will into the world. And their words are valid and true because they carry with it God's authority. They come from God himself. And that's how, that's how we make sense of who God is, of who we are and what we can expect from the future, not other vain philosophies. And that's the next sub-point that I want to point out, is that God's sovereignty extends beyond the present as he reveals his plans for the future as well. In other words, God's not reactionary, right? His plans and purposes have already been firmly established before the world was even created, and it's all going to be accomplished in his timing and in his will. And here in particular, God is announcing to Israel in this particular passage that he is going to deliver them from their exile in Babylon. He's going to return them to Jerusalem, and he's going to help them to rebuild the ruins and God gives them a nod to the past by, by reminding them of the dependability of his claims. He's done massive things in the past for them already, like parting an entire sea so they can walk in the midst of it on dry, level ground as they were leaving Egypt during the Exodus. He says, I say to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, verse 27. And that's just another way of saying that there's no object, there's no, there's no barrier that God will, will keep from performing this epic deliverance for his people. Think about what that must have meant, right, to Judah. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Actually put it into two different pairs of shoes, right? First one's, I don't know, Converse Chuck Taylors, let's say they are. And you're, you're standing in, in Jerusalem. You're, you're, the, you're the people who are hearing this addressed in Jerusalem while it's still around you, while you're still living there. Jerusalem is still very much assembled around you, right? People are, we're, they're still frequenting the temple of God. He, he, God saved them from the crutches of, of, of Assyria, the army that was, that was coming at them from all sides. And Isaiah's prophesying that in the distant future, about 150 years from the time that, that he would exist, that he would, after he would die, that Bob, Babylon will come and destroy Jerusalem that you're living in. And it's going to drag your descendants 500 miles away from your homes but that God's not going to abandon you when that happens. He's going to deliver you and provide you a way back to Jerusalem to rebuild these ruins. Imagine for a second what that would have sounded like if you're standing in those shoes. Imagine the the confidence that should hopefully have provided you as you're seeing the tides turn as as things are are falling apart around you and as they eventually would come crashing down around you physically. Now put on another pair of shoes. Birkenstocks, I don't know, some sort of sandals, right? <laughs> Fast forward two centuries, right? You're living in Babylon, as your parents did, and maybe even your grandparents did before you. You've heard about the city of God. You've heard about Jerusalem in the stories. You've heard about the temple at the, at, at the foundation, at the center of it all, where God dwelt with his people, the Shekinah glory of God being there. You've never seen it in your, your entire life. Isaiah's not around, but his words are, sit, are sitting here and they're, they're written down in a scroll, opened up, being read to you. You're hearing this prophecy. Imagine 
the hope that would have provided you and your time as you're seeing the tides turn. But there's more to the prophecy here that we see God's introducing his people to the shepherd, that, he's, that the shepherd's going to escort them out of exile, and he gives us a name. His name is Cyrus. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 8 now as we, as we turn to God's word. He tells us who this instrument is that he will use to save his people. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness in the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who will call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may, may bear fruit. Let the earth Cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. And as history records here, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, would go on to defeat Babylon, the Babylonian uh, nation, in 539 B.C., ending, in, in, ending Judah's 70-year exile out of the walls of, uh, out, of, out of the boundaries of Babylon. And this has got to be probably the most controversial section of Isaiah's prophecy that we're looking at this morning. It, it baffles scholars that, that Isaiah could have predicted with such accuracy, right? So such precision that all this would happen 150 years after he died. That a man named Cyrus would not only just exist, but he would, he would rise on the world stage to lead Persia, to dominate the world, and, and to defeat Babylon, and then send Judah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild this temple. And that's what's happened. That's exactly what we see happening. That, that, and the best that, that scholars can do to try to make sense of this is to say that it couldn't have been the same Isaiah that wrote the rest of this, this book. That some kind of a Deutero Isaiah, contemporary maybe of Cyrus, who found out what was going on in Cyrus and then, and then just plugged his name in here and, and all the rest of it, wrote the portion of this prophecy. But as we've just learned... that. The sovereign God of the universe not only foresees the events that are happening, but he actually determines them. He orchestrates them. And in his wisdom, which is much more wonderful and for us to grasp or fathom, he names Cyrus as the one who's going to fulfill his purposes by, by filling Israel's void of leadership. Essentially, it's what's happening. They have no leadership. Shepherd here is a, is a kingly term. Right? It's, a, it's a kingly metaphor that's been used. And, and God, by all accounts, positioned Cyrus in this, in this place to be a, a kind of a Davidic king by reestablishing Jerusalem as a city of God and as a temple. God's dwelling place with his people. And he also calls Cyrus here, interestingly, in verse 1 of chapter 45 here, his anointed. 
a title that's usually reserved only for prophets and priests and kings. But God's calling Cyrus this, this pagan king, his anointed, his, dare I say the word, his Messiah. And he's going to use Cyrus to accomplish his plans. And the imagery of, he's using here is of, of taking him by the hand and com- communicates that God's going to equip and encourage Cyrus, his military pursuits and his dominance in the world, his, empower his, his progress as he's subduing these nations under his control. And Cyrus is going to disarm kings. And he's going to render these competing military leaders effectively ineffective. <laughs> He'll go before him. He's going to go before Cyrus. And he's going to ensure that these gates are opened to these cities and that they're vulnerable to his attacks. He's going to decimate the bronze doors and iron bars and, and notice that there's no place is going to, uh, he's not going to overcome or uh, establish his dominance over. The exalted places we see in verse 2, right? He's going to level the exalted places and also the dark secret recesses here where, where all the riches and treasures are stored, these storehouses are also going to be ransacked. So no one, not including the Babylonian army and that empire, is any match for Cyrus because the Lord's might is behind him. But God doesn't just do this just for fun, for kicks, or, or to, to shake up the world or to somehow redistribute wealth or power. It wasn't to exalt Cyrus there wasn't anything intrinsically special about Cyrus himself. He, he wasn't righteous. He wasn't sinless. He was a pagan king. Didn't even worship God. In fact, there's really no evidence we see in history that he actually turned or bowed his knee to God, that he converted from his paganism. But God providentially designed Cyrus for this role. It says that he predestined him. Not in a saving way that he predestined him, but God set him apart to fulfill this particular purpose in history. Verse 3 says that, that God says of Cyrus that I call you by your name. I name you even though you don't know me. It's an intimate thing when, when parents name their children. So it, it wasn't, though, to advance Cyrus's fame. Then, then what was it for? We told that God uses Cyrus to, it says here, to reveal himself to Cyrus, to reveal himself to his people and to the entire world. So do you see the broadening here? It starts with God's revelation to Cyrus, this individual, then the nation of Israel, and then to the world at large. It's this, this campaign that God's on to publicly proclaim His glory on the world stage. So Cyrus is going to take notice. Israel's going to take notice. And the people from the, from the east all the way to the west are going to take notice that there is no other God but Yahweh. As we'll see, God's not looking simply for recognition of his superiority over these, these competing deities, these competing gods, but he's actually claiming exclusivity as the one true God among all these false gods. Verse 7 shows that God's revealing that he's determining all that happens within this world. It says that in light, in darkness, in peace and calamity, here we see two different categories, Right? That, that have contrasting imagery, light and darkness, peace and calamity, that, that he's 
determining all that happens in both nature, light and darkness, and in history over what happens, peace and calamity. Not arbitrarily, not capriciously, but according to His wise and holy purpose to unveil His glory, to put on display for the world. And that's the principle that we can derive from this all these thousands of years later after it was written and prophesied. So the question for us this morning is, do we believe that to be true? Do we trust that, that God is the sovereign over control over His world that, and that we can trust that there's nothing outside of His purview and nothing outside of His control, even if our own limited understanding and, and perspective seems to indicate otherwise? He's still in control. And then briefly we see in verse, verse 8, this beautiful picture of this, this reigning coming down from heaven and, and this harvest that's, that's, that's coming up as a, as a result of the rains falling to the earth. After announcing His purposes, God then calls upon heaven and earth to commence His redemptive work. It's kind of like a, re, a reminder, a, a return, an allusion to the creation of the world. Now He's calling on His world that He created to now bring about His righteous acts and, and cause salvation to sprout up and, and to blossom in the earth. He alone is able to, to save is the point. That He's sovereign and because He's a sovereign in control, He, he alone has the power to and the authority to defeat sin and to defeat uh, death and to redeem sinners. But before we transition to salvation, which we'll get to, I promise you, God first anticipates that there's going to be some pushback from His people. So let's go to our next point here. We've seen God's sovereignty, his, his shepherd that He is going to use. Now let's look at God's authority in verses 9 through 13. So here again, the word of the Lord. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does a clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a, to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred them up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. It's easy for us to to miss this in, in our particular context, but this was a shocking statement to Judah that God's going to use this pagan king to rescue them from bondage. Right? Cyrus was not their Messiah that they were expecting. So rather than in inspiring them to then worship God because of His mysterious, inscrutable ways, and they instead complained and they, they challenged God's methods. And it wasn't just a struggle with trying to understand, to comprehend, ascertain what could have been going on in the mind of God. Just a simple misunderstanding or, or a, a humble question. This, the problem was that they didn't want to accept what God was telling them He was going to do. They were challenging His authority to act in the world however He so pleased it says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does a clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. God's demonstrating how absurd and foolish they are for challenging his rightful authority 
by comparing them to these, these pots and these, these handmade pots. And some translations refer to them as, as broken pieces. They're not even fully formed. So does a pot or any created object have any right or the audacity to challenge the creator for making them the way that he does? What, what right does clay have to tell the sculptor how to form a sculpture? Right? He also uses this interesting illustration of a baby defying his parents for conceiving and giving birth to him. Like, who does that? You know what I mean? And if that wasn't enough, God, God, the Lord here continues to his rebuke by announcing his identity as the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed them. He's the one who formed them. See, see, see what's so interesting there? He's talking about the one who formed these created pots and I formed you. And he's asking this rhetorical question, are you going to tell me how I'm going to relate to my creation? So you, you can also hear this at the same time, this, this righteous indignation that, that's also coming from a protective father for his children. Will you command me concerning the, my children and the work of my hands? Do you honestly think that you have, you know what's best for my kids? So God's here declaring his freedom to his right to act as he chooses in the world. And that includes, in this particular situation, exalting a pagan king to fulfill the duties of a Davidic king. God's sovereignty doesn't, doesn't just mean that he has all the power and over, all the control over the universe. It, it also means much more than that. It means that he has the authority, he has the responsibility and the freedom to exert his power and exert his control over the universe according to his righteous purposes. He makes the rules because he made, he made the place. His house, his rules, right? He's responsible to no one and to no standard other than himself. Right? And that's, this, this mark of righteousness is not just an attestation to his morality, but to the, his truth and the accuracy of what he's doing. It's not only his prerogative to use Cyrus, it actually is the right thing for him to do in the, Circumstances that he's made in the context that he's created for them. And praise God, he, he did take Cyrus by the hand and he leveled all his ways because it meant salvation for God's people, right? And it meant that they would go back to Jerusalem and inhabit the city of God, as we see in verse 13. Notice that God refers to Judah here as my exiles and the city as, as my city. So despite the fact that they've been in and incarcerated in exile for 70 years, they hadn't lost their identity as God's people. Right? They belonged to God wherever they were. And he was, he was going to escort them back to the city on a hill that was meant to, to shine, to reflect His glory to all the nations, a, hot, a light of hope and salvation to the world. So to summarize this section, God's, God's going to utilize Cyrus and his utilization of Cyrus is consistent with his character and his wisdom that's going to advance his glory and the benefit of his people. Right? And by the way, here it says, um, here at the, at the end of this, this, uh, this verse here, chapter, uh, verse 13, he will build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. So Cyrus is not just some hired hand. He's not just uh, a kind of mercenary that God's hiring to accomplish his, his word, uh, his will and his word. He's not going to deserve some kind of wage for what he's doing. 
for his political and military expediency. In fact, he's actually we're going to see if you look in Ezra chapter one and two, he's going to float the bill for the entire building project. Right? He's going to send them. He's going to bring them out of this exile, send them back to Jerusalem, and he's going to give them all that they need to build the the, the, the city walls, the temple. And all the things that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon are being funneled right back to where they belong to God's city. Again, Ezra's chapter 1 and 2, we don't have time to look at it today, but I'd encourage you to look at that on your own, or also look back at the sermon series we did on Ezra and Nehemiah, the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah, you can find it on our website. So the question, once again, for us is, do we trust God to be God? That He has authority over the creation? Do we acknowledge that he has the freedom to accomplish his purpose and that everything that he's accomplishing in, in the world is righteous and good? Do you believe that God can choose anybody he wants to reveal his glory and to bless the church, his people? Do you trust him? Do you, do you embrace those plans and purposes even if they don't seem like they make sense from our perspective? We can see here in this passage that we can trust we can trust God to be God. And last, we turn to our next section here as we look about all that's going God's accomplishing. When we see the end result that God is going to, by His good providence, which is the sovereign work and activity of God in His world, that He is going to bring about salvation to all who trust in Him. Let's look at the last part of this chapter, verses 14 through 25. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other God besides Him. Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or be, or be confounded to all eternity. For thus is the Lord, who created the heavens. He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to God who cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who has told this long ago? Who, who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So God here reveals this magnificent picture of the nations all converging on Jerusalem. But this time not to subdue them, not to overtake them, but to bow in humble submission to them. 
They've recognized that something precious about Israel that has evaded them for centuries. That Israel possesses a treasure that's far more beautiful and valuable than anything that they've ever seen. So much so that they're willing to come and they're going to give up their measly treasures to Israel. They're going to bow before them. Lay it at their feet. Look at verse 14. It says, God is in you and there's no other, no God besides Him. So this, this reality of finally coming to their awareness has arrested their efforts to divide and conquer Israel. And now instead they want to emigrate to Israel. They, they want to assimilate with Israel and follow in their ways. They, they want to worship the one true God of the universe. Here's why I think there's a little bit of a minor mistake, say humbly speaking, not of the text, but of the ESV and how they separated out these verses and things. And I believe that verse 15 is actually a continuation of the nation statements that began in verse 14. It says, Behold, they are... Um, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 14 here. Um, they plead with you saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other God, no other God besides Him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So I think it's a continuation of from verse 14 into 15. The nations are proclaiming this. They're confessing that Israel's God is the one true God. And they continue that, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O Israel, O God of Israel, the Savior. What do they mean by that? Well, I think they're awestruck. It's a, it's a moment for them where they're finally seeing that how God used this seemingly insignificant nation, the small nation of Israel, as the one who was going to display, that was going to purvey this power and grace to all the nations. So God is using what appears to be the weak and foolish things of this world to reveal His glory. Paul used the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about how God uses the weak and foolish things of this world and that are foolish in the world's eyes to proclaim the reality and the truth and the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Gentile nations are finally seeing this and they're amazed at God's grandeur that's being reflected by God's people. And for long stretches of history, it's, it's appeared that Israel has been this battered and bruised nation that's, that's been surrounded at all times by, by these different pagan nations. But in reality, God has concealed Himself by using these nations around them to actually condition His people for holiness, to prepare for them a salvation. Not just a deliverance from these military, uh, these military forces or these adversaries like Assyria, like Babylon, or, or, or much later in history, Rome. God's plan was, was much larger than that. It's to defeat the enemies of sin, Satan, and death that had, that had been chaining them for centuries. And today, it can also appeal the same way, right? For us as the church of God, that we're being battered around by governments and by cultures in this nation and other nations around the world. But the reality is God's still using His church, church to proclaim the gospel that still is saving sinners. Amen? So the, the powers and the forces that appear to have the control are actually being used by God for the good of His people, whether we recognize it or not. Even when it seems that God's hidden from our view, He's not. He's not absent. Let me encourage you that although 
God's activity and providence may be beyond our ability at times to, to see or to understand. It's never beyond our ability to trust Him. God has proven Himself mighty and faithful over centuries and over and over again. And, and all of us can say the same thing individually in our own hearts about how God has been faithful to us, right? Are you reflecting on that faithfulness of those that we see in Scripture and, and, and of the reality that's trans, transpired in your life as God's been working through you? Are, are, are we sharing these stories of faithfulness with one another? That's, that's a great opportunity to do that in community groups. We can share that with each other and, and, and build each other up when we need it. And look at verse 17. The salvation that God had, had planned for them was an eternal salvation. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You should not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. This is contrasting here. We see in, the, in this, uh, this little um, area of the passage that between confusion and shame, along with you know, that, that those who are remaining in, in an idol worship are going to continue to experience but those who trust in the Lord are going to be healed from this shame and confusion with salvation and clarity. See, shame and confusion is being changed for salvation and clarity. The one who has been awakened to the reality of the sovereign Lord understands that God alone is the one who could save to the uttermost. And for those who don't see it, who are blinded by their sin, they were going to carry on by praying to God that cannot save. When I was reading that this week, that broke my heart. When you think about about that, does it break your heart when you think about people who don't know Jesus that continue to persist in worshiping a God that can't save them? Honestly, that's not always the case for my heart, and God forgive me for that. But do you know someone who persists in their sin, hoping? thinking, believing that it's going to provide for them everything that they, they want, and you just realize it's futile. God goes on to confront these idolaters of Babylon, and he pits them against himself, showing that they have an inability to save, that these, these gods cannot save. Neither the false gods nor the ones who follow them have any knowledge, have any true knowledge, it says. They, they can't predict what God has predicted in Cyrus. God's showing his hand saying, could they predict what I'm predicting now about who's going to come and save my people? These idols can't save you. No idol can save you. No matter, and that is f- true for us today too. The idols that we manufacture, no matter how complex their parts or their pieces are, can't save us. But then God does something Amazing and astonishing here. Rather than roast them, God calls the nations to turn to Him and be saved. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The offer of salvation is is not just for Israel, as we're seeing here. It was never meant only to be just for Israel. God's mission is to save sinners from all areas of the globe. And God was planning his, this rescue mission that was much, much larger and grander than Judah at the time could have dreamed of. Right? God accomplished his salvation in a way that, that no one expected. Right? 
And although he told them for centuries that he would send them a servant, he would send them a shepherd, he'd send them this Messiah, that would all fall on deaf ears, unbelieving ears. And just like Judah defied God's authority to send Cyrus, the religious leaders that lived in this rebuilt temple of Jerusalem later on, who worshipped within these monumental walls that they glorified, they also defied the God-man, Jesus Christ, when he stood before them, right before his face. They failed to recognize that God had come to consummate the plan of of salvation for Israel and the nations through his son, Jesus Christ. Instead, they mocked and they falsely and unjustly accused him of blasphemy and, and they delivered this perfect, spotless lamb, the son of God, over to the Roman authorities and they demanded that he be crucified. And on Calvary, the God who entered into the creation that he had made was lifted onto this wooden cross to die. And this we see happening and transpiring in that event, this, this unholy alliance of Israel and, and Gentile Rome are participating together, nations of the world participating together in crucifying the Holy One of Israel. But incredibly, no plan or act of humanity could thwart God's plan to procure the salvation for these rebellious sinners, the ones that put them on the cross. Listen as we at Acts chapter uh, four, verse twenty-four to twenty-eight. We see this this joint prayer of believers after they had been ridiculed and told to be silent. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the, the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had incredibly, marvelously, whatever superlative you want to use, had predestined this most heinous crime in world history, the crucifixion of His Son Jesus Christ, in order to accomplish His good and His holy purposes in the world. And what was that purpose? To provide salvation to all people through the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the glory of God the Father. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and He rose from the grave. We just sang, He's alive, He's alive. And He is the one that to everyone on the earth, every knee will bow before someday. Verse 23 should sound pretty familiar, right? To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Well, what is the confession? And what would be that mark of allegiance be? See that in, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Because of Jesus' obedience to the Father's mission, because, because He willingly humbled Himself by coming to the earth and dying on the cross, it says, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow before King Jesus. And they'll do it either joyfully or begrudgingly. 
Right? Those who persist in the rebellion will be terror-struck when Jesus returns to establish His kingdom that's going to be a kingdom that's characterized by righteousness and peace and justice and holiness and all the things that our hearts yearn for and want to see happen here finally will happen. and He will reign in justice and righteousness and those who remain, in, as it says in, the, in, our, in our verses here, incensed against His authority, those who rebel against His authority will suffer eternal punishment in hell for their rebellion. But it says those who have trusted Jesus, their punishment was served when Jesus bore their sins and suffered God's righteous wrath on the cross. They, and those people, hopefully many, all of us here could say that, will one day, when Jesus returns, celebrate His return because they have been forgiven of their sins. Their shame has been washed away forever and it, being with their Savior will be all that they have been hoping for and will finally be realized when they're with them face to face forever. And Isaiah uses here a strongly and rich theological word, justified. All the offspring of Israel, that is all people who come to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, bow before Him, worship Him, will be made perfect. They will be called blameless and sinless because of what Christ has done, not just in declaration, but in reality, when we will finally be practically perfect and righteous, even though we're not here. We are not those things. We will be there. And we will finally go on living and with unending worship and joy the holy, sovereign Savior of the universe without fear of any enemies because all of them have finally been defeated. So in closing, have we trusted Christ? Have you, have you bowed before Him as your Lord and Savior now, before He returns? If not, this offer of verse 22 is for you. In fact, verse 22 was, was the text that was used that, that, that brought uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon to faith when he heard these, this, to turn and to be delivered of sin. Turn to Christ. Turn and be saved. If you're, and if you're a Christian this morning, what's, what's the Holy Spirit laying on your heart this morning? What's, what's He working on to remind you about God's sovereignty and His authority and His salvation? Is it, is it that you need to proclaim the gospel to somebody that you know? That He's... He's prodding you to open your mouth and proclaim the good news of the gospel? Or, you, or maybe you're contending with God. Maybe you're wrestling with Him over the circumstances in your life and the position that He's placed you in right now in your life. And Let me just say, there's, there's no shame in repenting of sin because we serve a great and gracious God and Savior. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it... It's true. It's timelessly true. It will never return void, but it will accomplish all that you have spoken. All you've spoken will finally be accomplished one day. We thank you, Lord, that you've not left us alone, that you have your Holy Spirit now to remind us, to illuminate these words before us and and to our hearts and to our minds, to invoke confidence in you, uh, not in ourselves. It's not not about human uh, strength, or wisdom, but it's about relying on your strength and wisdom and power to save. And so we thank you, Lord, for saving us. We pray that you would continue to go on saving and use us to be participants in bringing the good news of salvation to all people so that one day we would all collectively gather together, all the nations, not enraged against you, 
but in humble submission and worship before you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.